Well, if you've been with us this semester, you know that we've been walking chapter by chapter through the book of Revelation. We've been studying this incredible book that God has given to us that holds both promises and prophecies about the days to come. And God has given us this future knowledge so that it would transform our present understanding. That as we learn more about the days to come, that it would change the way that we think, speak, and live in the days here and now. And as we've been reading through this book, what we have come to see time and time and time again is that the Lord, our God, is righteous. That he is right. Literally just the Calling God righteous means that we are saying that he is right in who he is in all that he does, that he does not make mistakes, that he does not err, that he doesn't have faults or failures, that God is in fact purely, perfectly right in everything he says and everything that he does and all that who he is, he is right. This is what we see time and time again in the book of Revelation. We see it in the way that he deals with humanity. We see it in the way that he deals with the heavenly hosts. We see it in the way that he pours out judgment against evil, but we also see it in the way that he provides mercy to those who trust in the name of Jesus Christ for the salvation that they desperately need. We see the righteousness of God over and over again, and yet it's difficult for us at times to really grab a hold of this idea, to really, you know, accept this premise because there's no one like our God, right? Because he is alone in this perfection. He is alone in this holiness that we ourselves fail to live up to, that even our heroes, even maybe a parent of ours or a family member or a loved one or or maybe someone from from history that we would look to, we say, wow, they were standout examples of X, Y, Z. They did this or they did that. And yet, even as we look at those human examples or even human heroes, what we find time and again is that people make mistakes, that people have to change, that they're wrong in the way that they dealt with this issue or in the wrong in the way that they thought about that thing. And time and again, We are confronted with the fact that even though God is perfect and is right, that we are not. I became aware of this in my life very early on. I remember when I was in second grade, so about eight years old, uh, I was going to a big kind of group event, and I saw one of my friends across the room, one of my best friends at the time, this kid named Philip. And when I saw him, I was excited to see him. And so when you're excited to see someone and you're eight years old, what do you do? Well, you wave at him, right? That's, that's how I had grown up. That's what I knew to be true and good is that when I saw a friend, when I saw someone I was excited to see, I wanted to make sure they saw me too, so I'd wave. And so I walk into this event. I see Philip across the room. I wave at him. Oh, hey, you know, hey, Philip. And as he's seeing me, right, he makes eye contact with me, and I'm standing there like waving like, oh, hey. And he just gives me this. He doesn't wave. He doesn't lift his hand. In fact, all he does is sort of sees me, locks eyes, and goes, Gives me this just, just this barely perceptible head motion. And I was confused and probably crestfallen. And Philip could see that in me. And so he came across the room and he pulled me aside, right? So, and he was born four days before me. Birthday's really close. And so he was a wiser, older guy. And so he pulled me aside as someone who was eight and a few days older than me. And he explained to me, he says, Jacob, it's not cool to wave. Like, oh my gosh, I had no idea, right? Like, what, what do I do? He says, what's cool now is you just kind of give a head nod. I learned it from my brother Andrew. He's 12. And I was like, okay, yeah, it must be true. So he gives me this wisdom. He tells me this advice. He says, from now on, man, you just got to, if you want to be cool, you just got to 
kind of nod your head, you know, go and do likewise. And I said, all right, I will. And, and so it stuck with me. And from that moment on, from eight to, you know, probably a few decades later, I just, I knew this. This was ingrained in my mind. I was like, okay, if I see someone, I'm just like, stop, right? That, that was what was the cool way to do it. And then eventually, you know, I became a dad. I'm a dad now, so I'm just like, hey, what's up? You know, like, I don't care. Um, but for a long time, I was really, I was convinced. I was like, wow, I had no idea. I was so wrong that I needed to change. I needed to adjust my methodology. I got to change the way that I deal with other people because before that, oh, I was just missing the mark. And the Lord is gracious in that he has allowed us to change, right? God calls us to live according to his will, and yet he knows that we fail. That's why we have a term for this process that we call sanctification, where over time, through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, God transforms us into a new creation. He, he guides us. He directs us. He convicts us where we're wrong. He strengthens us where we're weak. And he wants us to be transformed more into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's a process that we must go through, and yet that God has already fulfilled. That God is perfect. He is just. He is righteous. And he's righteous not just in the way that he is gracious and merciful with us, but what we see in the book of Revelation, what we'll see specifically this morning in Revelation 15 and 16, is that God's righteousness is even revealed in his wrath, in his justice, in his judgment against that which is evil. And so if you'll turn with me to Revelation chapter 15, we're going to read 15 and 16. We're not going to read all of it because it's just, it's a lot to go through this morning, um, but we're going to hit kind of key moments in these two chapters, and we're going to go from the start to the end, and we're going to see over the course of these passages, of these two chapters, that the Lord, that yes, he is righteous, he is right, he is good, and he's even good when his wrath is poured out. He's even good when his justice prevails in sometimes tragically horrible, terrifying ways. So if you'll read with me in Revelation chapter 15, we start in verse 1. And John, who's been given these visions, he's been, he's been tasked with writing down about the, writing uh, an account of what is to come. He says that, I saw another great and astounding sign in heaven. There were seven angels who had seven final plagues, and they are final because in them God's anger is completed. So John is telling us, okay, I know that we've been through a lot of kind of horrific events. If you have been with us for the last couple of months, we read, you know, much of the middle of Revelation. We're looking at these different uh, scrolls, these, these judgments that come with the breaking of seals. We see that there's judgment that comes with the blowing of certain trumpets. And what we're coming to now is kind of the final encapsulation of God's judgment in seven different bowls that are filled with the wrath of God. And yet John is telling us right here on the front end, before we get into the middle, the, you know, the mix of all the bull stuff, he says, hey, just so you know, this is it. Like we've reached the end, that this is final, that once these bowls are poured out, once these plagues are accomplished, that then God's anger is complete. It will be finished. And so he says in verse two that I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had conquered the beast and his image and the number of his name. And they were standing by the sea of glass holding harps given to them by God. So John is calling back to a group that we first saw in Revelation chapter 12, this group of individuals who in the midst of God's judgment, most of the earth still continues in unrepentance. They continue in rebellion, that even as God is telling them time and again that he is pouring out his judgment because they have wronged, even though he's telling them repeatedly, I'm, I'm pouring out my judgment, but I want you to return. Every single time God is demonstrating his justice and pouring out judgment on the earth, he's repeatedly 
telling the people of earth, he's telling humanity, I want you to come to me. That's why his judgment has to be so severe, because he's seeking to draw people to repentance. He wants to draw people to himself. He says, I'm ready. I'm ready to receive you. If you would simply run to me instead of away from me in the midst of all this tragedy, in the midst of this judgment, and yet the vast majority of the world continues in their unrepentance. They curse the name of God. They continue in their open rebellion against him. And yet there are some, there are a few, there's this 144,000 that turns to the Lord, that puts their faith in Jesus Christ. And so they're not marked by the rulers of the world. They're not marked by the beast or the antichrist. Instead, they are marked by God. They are given the mark of his name and and his goodness and his righteousness. And yet here in Revelation 15, what we see is that a number of these individuals, they're no longer being persecuted on earth. Instead, they are with the Lord in the heavens. And this is significant to us because in Revelation 12, we're told that these individuals, what made them so uh, stand out and remarkable was that they didn't count their lives as more important than their allegiance to the Lord. And so what we're seeing here is that these are individuals who have died. They've been martyred. They have died because of their faith in Jesus Christ, because of their allegiance to the Lord Most High. They have been persecuted to death. And yet in this moment, they are standing by the sea of glass, holding these harps, this equipment to sing praise. And what do they do? They begin to sing. They sing the song of Moses the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And they say, great and astounding are your deeds, Lord God, the all-powerful. Just and true are your ways. This is an allusion to the the song of Moses is most likely the song we have in Exodus 15, where God had delivered his nation of Israel out of bondage and slavery. They'd crossed the Red Sea. They'd seen the most powerful army in the world at that point crushed by the might of God. And in Exodus 15, they sing praise about how God is their deliverer, how he is their strength, that he is their hope. And so in the same way, these martyrs, these individuals who who weren't comfortable, right? They, They weren't conquering the nations. They weren't conquering the Antichrist. They weren't conquering Satan through their own ability. They didn't establish the kingdom of God on their own. Instead, they were persecuted and they died. And yet, They've been delivered from that death. They've been delivered through that seeming defeat into true victory. And so they can sing with full confidence that God's deeds are great and astounding, that he is Lord, that he is all-powerful, that he is just, literally the term for just right here is righteous, that God is right and he is true in all of his ways, that he is the true king over all of creation. So who will not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name because you alone are holy? So all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. Not only are they singing the praise of God, but they begin to prophesy about a day that is about to come. Because as they're singing this, we know that on earth there is still rebellion. There's still so much worship and praise that is being misdirected, that is not going to the God who deserves it, but instead is going to these false leaders, these, this false Christ, this false enemy of Satan. And so they are saying, yes, that, that is taking place. Maybe it's taking place right now, but there's a day coming very soon when all of that worship will go to you. When all will confess that you are Lord, that there's no one like you, that you alone are holy, that you are set apart, that your acts are righteous, and it will be revealed for all to see. 
It's an incredible song of hope and conviction. And it's a song that, that has echoes in chapter 16. Even as God is pouring out his wrath through these seven different bowls that we'll talk about in a moment, in the midst of God pouring out his wrath upon a rebellious humanity, there's an angel that's been given one of the bowls, and he's standing over the waters as he's poured out this bowl of wrath, and he says that, God, you are just. If you look just ahead in chapter 16, verse 5, he says, God, you are just, the one who is and who was, the Holy One, because you have passed these judgments, because they have poured out the blood of your saints and prophets, so you have given them blood to drink. They got what they deserved. It's an echo, it's a, the same refrain at the start, this term for just, it's the term righteous, because God, you are righteous, you are right. Therefore, these people who have rebelled against you, who have spilled the blood of your chosen saints, your chosen prophets, they are receiving their right reward. They are getting what they deserve. Literally, the term here is that they are worthy. They are worthy of the consequence that they have brought about because of their rebellion. Even though they fail to see God for who he is, for what he's done, even though they fail to recognize that he is deserving of praise and honor and glory forever and ever, God still is king. He still is sovereign. He is still the one in control of these circumstances. And so it's amazing for us. It's hopefully a comfort and a hope for us, that God's righteousness is seen not only in his actions, but it's also seen in our vindication. It's seen in the way that he deals with humanity and, and the way that he is just and, and, and punishes what is evil, but it's also seen, his righteousness is seen in the way that he protects, preserves, and vindicates his chosen people. We can trust God sees us, that he is aware of our lives. He's aware of our highs and our lows, and he has chosen to preserve us, to protect us, even though that conquering power won't always mean we're comfortable. What it means is that we have a hope beyond this world, beyond the highs and the lows, the mountains and the valleys that this, this earth brings to us. We know that we have a place in our Father's house that Jesus Christ has prepared on our behalf. That's our hope. It's something that, that I, my kids have to see time and time and time again. What my wife and I have realized is that there is a temptation in our home uh, for our kids to feel like they have to be the vindicators, that they have to be the ones who bring the hammer of justice to what is wrong in our house. And there's a lot of injustice in our home. It's just what happens when you have three little kids, right, almost eight, six, four. Like there's just, there, is, there are wrong choices and actions and words that take place when you cram that many little people together. Or big people with your roommates, you know. Like it just, it never goes away. And so one of the things that we see time and again is that as we are trying to, you know, soothe wounds or as we're trying to kind of help our kids like work through difficulties or friction or conflict, that many times they're trying to take it on themselves to be the arbitrator of what is right and what is good. Just the other day, just yesterday, we were talking to our youngest, our three-year-old, we were saying, hey, buddy, when you wake up in the morning, like it's, you, it's important for you to stay in your room until the light is green. That's your sign that you can come out. Now that said, if you need to use the restroom, you can do that. But when you do that, when you use the restroom, you don't need to go tell everyone else in the house that you're using the restroom because that is for whatever reason 
what he wants to do. Sin has broken us all. And so he wants to declare his trip to the restroom to everyone else who may or may not, or is more often than not, sleeping at the time. So my wife and I are explaining this very calmly, compassionately to our son, and it's this moment that his big brother and his big sister just feel like they have to chime in. They're like, yeah, don't wake us up. We don't need to know when you need to use the restroom. Don't tell us. And as they're just heaping this shame and condemnation upon him, my wife and I, this is one of just many examples where we have to say, okay, hey, listen, listen, it's okay. Like, we're here. Like, we're, I'm dad. I'll, I'll, I'm, you need one dad. One dad is enough. Like, that's all our house needs. And I promise, you don't have to be dad right now. You don't have to be mom. You've got a mom. She handles things really well most of the time, right? That's like, this is, this is how we function. We're still falling. I'm still going to make mistakes. Every once in a while, I'm, I'm not going to say the right thing at the right time, or I'm not going to catch everything that takes place. My wife and I, right, we're falling. We're, we're imperfect. But listen, kids, we're the best you got, right? This is it. This is the hand the Lord has dealt you. You'll work through it in therapy years later. Like, that's just, this is what you got. And so we try to comfort them and, and remind them, hey, you don't have to carry this. You don't have to carry this burden. And yet there's something in them that feels like they have to be the one to bring about justice, to bring about what is right. And this is a struggle of not just for us when we're five or six or seven years old. It's a struggle for us for our entire lives. That's why the Apostle Paul had to write to the church in Rome and tell them explicitly, look, you are not called to repay evil for evil, but instead consider what is good for all people. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Do we love justice? Yes, that is right. That is good. Do we deal justly? Absolutely. But at the same time, do we love mercy? We should. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not avenge yourselves, dear friends, but give place to God's wrath. For it's written, vengeance is mine and I will repay, says the Lord. Rather, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing this, you will be heaping burning coals on his head. So do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We're not called to be foolish and naive. We're supposed to be gentle as lambs and yet wise as serpents. So we don't put ourselves in danger unnecessarily, but we recognize that our God has dealt with us in a merciful way. Therefore, we are agents of his mercy to the world around us. We do our best to live at peace with everyone. And yet there's a part of us that fears being overlooked, that God's gonna miss. That either the injustice is taking place or more often than not, we're, we're, we're frustrated because we feel like God doesn't see us living according to his will. Because we don't always get the reward we want. We don't always get the affirmation we feel like we deserve. And so there's, it's possible for us to become discouraged and frustrated as we seek to live a life according to the will of God, to obey his commandments. But, but we're told repeatedly in Scripture that God sees us, that he's aware. That in fact, he's storing reward for those who live according to his will, who are called according to his purpose. But there's still something in us, oh gosh, it's, it's tricky, it's tricky. We feel like we want to do the right thing, but we don't always feel like that, that brings the result that we want it to bring. You know, in a couple days, we have an election, and we get to vote, and it's really important to vote, right? We, we know that, an election, we know, like, okay, and voting is really important. It's a, you know, exercise of my democratic, you know, uh, rights and, and responsibility, and it's, oh, it's a blessing. It's a great thing. It really is. 
It's important. But there's still a part of us that when we go vote, we're really kind of there just for that sticker. Right? It's really, if we're really honest, it might be the best part of voting in our minds. For some of us, that when we go to the voting poll and we you know, do it, it's, it's one of the reasons, honestly, I don't always early vote because I'm like, I want to get that sticker on the day because I want to go there and I get the sticker. And so, you know, I pass my ballot, they give me the sticker, it says, I've voted. And then you have a free pass. You show up a little late to work, right, or to class, and maybe it's like, well, I forgot to do that report, but you know what? I voted. God bless, you know, and you just like, you launch into it. Why? Because we know well, there's something in us that really desires. We want that little just like, tick, tick, you know, like, oh, everybody knows that I did the right thing, that I lived according to the, you know, the, the way I should. And so it is possible for us as we serve the Lord to feel overlooked. And it's fearful. It, it can be frustrating or disappointing for us. And yet we can trust that God is great. We can trust that God is in control, that he does, in fact, see us in those moments, in that sacrifice. The Lord honors those who honor himself. That Jesus himself says, I, I can't wait to welcome you in and tell you, good, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we trust the Lord. We trust that he's great. We trust that he's in control. It's what allowed Job, a figure from our Old Testament who is enduring incredible persecution, incredible suffering and trial. He was able to, at, at times, he didn't, he didn't endure perfectly in the suffering that he received. But he had moments of clarity. He, he overall was, was faithful to the Lord. And he had a moment of clarity in Job 13, where as he's dealing with the suffering in his life, he says, why do I put myself in peril and take my life into my hands? He has this moment where he realizes, he's recognizing, he's admitting, he says, when, when I take my life into my hands, really what I'm doing is I'm just putting myself in peril. Because, because I'm not actually the ultimate authority. I don't actually always have the right answers or the right way, or the right thing to say, the right thing to do. So, so if I'm fooling myself into thinking that I am God, I have put myself in peril. And so instead, even if he slays me, even if the Lord allows me to suffer for this time, I will hope in him. I will trust that his plan is greater, that his power is greater, and I will surely defend my ways to his face. I want to stand before the Lord and confess to him honestly, God, I trusted you. I trusted you and I hoped in you. And Job knew that that hope would not fail. He knew that that trust would in fact be vindicated someday. Doesn't mean his life was going to turn around and be comfortable in this world. But it did mean that he had a hope beyond whatever this world could offer. He trusted that God is right. We can trust that God is great, that he is right, and he's even righteous in his wrath. This is what we see described in Revelation. If you go back to 15, verse 5, John says that after this song, right after he sees these martyrs singing on the sea of glass, I looked, and the temple, the tent of the testimony, another term for the tabernacle, was opened in heaven. And the seven angels who had the seven plagues came out of the temple dressed in clean, bright linen, wearing wide golden belts around their chests. So, so I see the temple of the Lord in heaven opened up and this procession of angels come out. And one of the, living, one of the four living creatures gave the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from God's glory and from his power. Thus, no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels 
were completed. It says the wrath of God had been stored in these bowls, and they're about to be poured out on the earth. And what John is giving us here is, is a reminder that this is actually what we need. That even though the wrath of God is a terrifying thing to behold, that we, in fact, need God's wrath to destroy evil. Why? Because no one's going to be able to enter that temple until the seven plagues from the seven angels were completed. That in order for us to live in perfection with our God, he must deal with evil. He must deal with rebellion. And so John says this, this plague, these plagues, these bowls, this wrath of God is about to be poured out. And so I heard a loud voice in the first verse of chapter 16, a loud voice from the temple declaring to the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls containing God's wrath. So John is about to describe in chapter 16 these terrible plagues that we're not going to read in detail. But it is the wrath of God that he has stored up, that he is pouring out on a rebellious humanity. And in all of these moments, in all of the wrath, God's invitation to repentance is always there. His arms are still open. And yet time again, if we read through chapter 16, we would see that in the midst of that suffering, rather than these individuals turning to the Lord and confessing their failure before him, relying on his mercy that is ready and available, time and again, these people blasphemy the name of God. They curse the name of God and they refuse to repent, even as they're dealing with the consequences of their rebellion. And God pours out his wrath in these different plagues until we get to verse 17 of chapter 16, where we're told that finally the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, meaning this is the voice of God the Father, of the Lord Almighty. His voice rings out and says, it's done. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. And now we'll read over the next few weeks, in the next few chapters of Revelation, a little more detail about what that looks like, what God's final battle, his final vanquishing of his enemy looks like. But we're told right here in chapter 16, right there in verse 17, that God is saying, this is the end. This is the culmination. This is the finished work of my wrath. In other words, I have now paved the way for a new heaven and a new earth. I have paved the way for the perfect redemption of my creation. And as we read this, we don't rejoice in the suffering of the enemies of God. Enemies that we all once were. Instead, we read this and we rejoice in the fact that we worship a perfect God who does not tolerate injustice and evil. We rejoice that we have a God whose love is unearned and yet given by grace. His righteousness is clear in the way that he has made a way for us to know him for eternity through Jesus Christ. We also rejoice knowing that God's righteousness is revealed in the fact that his wrath is fully deserved by all of humanity, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet his wrath is delayed by mercy. This is the encouragement that Peter gave to the early church, to men and women who were suffering for the sake of Christ. People who were tempted to to think that they were being overlooked by God. And 
Peter tells them this encouragement in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says that the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness, but he's being patient toward you because he does not wish for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Peter says it's not maybe lining up with your timeline, your timetable. You might want the Lord to move a little quicker in this area or a little slower in that area. He says it's not up to you, though. It's not that God is dragging his feet when it comes to making things right. It says, instead, if we trust and acknowledge at the onset that God is good, that he is right in all of his ways, we need to realize that what we maybe regard as slowness is, in fact, his patience. His patience being directed toward you. His patience that is displayed for the sake of those that he doesn't wish to perish, but to instead come to repentance. But Peter tells them that the day of the Lord will come. It will come like a thief. And when it comes, the heavens will disappear with a horrific noise. And the celestial bodies will melt away in a blaze. And the earth and every deed done on it will be laid bare. He says there is no escape from the light and the, view, and the vision of God. There is no escape. The day will come like a thief, unexpectedly. Same way that Jesus always talked about these future days. He says it comes like a thief. And when it comes, the Lord will make things right. He'll make things right. It's important for us to remember that truth for conviction and also for comfort. Conviction in the sense that, you know, it's possible that even though sometimes we we, we are afraid of being overlooked by the Lord, there's times in our lives that, that maybe we'd prefer to be overlooked. That maybe we have little segments of our life or or habits that we've kind of fostered over the years, behaviors that we've done, maybe in secret that we think, well, you know, that's that's not necessarily a relationship I really want to put under the Lord's gaze. That's not necessarily a way I've dealt in work or in class that that really I, I don't really think about that taking place in the full sight of the Lord. And so there's moments that maybe we think, well, maybe, maybe God just like doesn't really see it. Maybe that's sort of the exception, right? Justice for all but mercy for me, right? Like, maybe that's okay. And it's moments like this. It's moments in Second Peter. It's moments in Revelation 16 that we're reminded, no, the Lord sees all. And there's a healthy measure of conviction that comes through that. That God is aware of all of our moments from when we lay down to when we, go, to when we wake up and go to bed. That God is very aware of the intimate details of our life. And so he uses his Holy Spirit to convict us. Conviction is good. Because conviction tells us that we're broken and yet God is perfect. It tells us, conviction tells us that we are weak and yet God is strong. Conviction tells us that we and ourselves are are hopeless and yet by the power of the Holy Spirit, God has promised to perform a work, both to, to change us, both to will and to work for the glory of God. Conviction is good. And yet it also can lead us at times into shame and, and self-deprecation, which is not. It's not good. It's a lie that maybe we've bought into ourselves. It's a lie that maybe we were told by people who we should have been able to trust, and yet we can't. And sometimes we wind up carrying this this shame or this this, this self-deprecating view that is not accurate. It's wrong. And so we need to confess that to the Lord. The same way that we confess when, when we stray from his purposes, when we stray from his will, we also confess, Lord, God, I need you to help me see myself as you see me, redeemed by the blood of Christ. 
saved by his work, not my own. It's, it's convicting for us to recognize that the Lord has stored up his wrath, but it's also a comfort because it reminds us that we can trust that God is good, that he will prevail. It's, it's the same uh, measure of, of mercy. It's the same comfort of mercy that, that I've seen even just recently. I was playing a game with my son or with our five-year-old yesterday. We're playing this little game, and it's like kind of a word game, and you're having to think and do things quick. And so as we're playing, you know, I, t- I take a little easy on them. You know, it's just it's part of my role as a father is to be gracious. And yet we finished our first round of this game, and my five-year-old looks at me across the table, and he's like, <laughs> like, Dad, I always beat you in this game. Like, I, I always beat you. I said, okay, let's play again. And I destroyed him. <laughs> because sometimes... Grace is good. Other times, justice must prevail. And I recognized that in that moment, did I deal perfectly well? I don't know. Like, you know, it is important to learn that sometimes you lose and you can still have fun. It's about having fun. But there's also, there's a part of us that we, we worry that maybe that God is just about, that we're just kind of waiting for the shoe to drop. Sometimes we worry that God is just biding his time until we feel comfy, and maybe we think things are going great, and we're like, oh no, that means that something's about to go down, because there's some part in us that believes that we just can't really be loved by God. There's a part of us that maybe believes that God's really just just withholding his wrath that's going to come, because maybe we've had that in a past relationship, or maybe that's just something we've created on our own. But what we can trust, what we have comfort in, is that God is good. That just as in Revelation 16, God finishes pouring out his seven bowls of wrath and says, it's done. We have that same statement come out of the mouth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The night that he died on the cross, the day that he died on the cross, his final words that we have recorded in John 19 is is after he had received the sour wine, was fulfilling these different prophecies about his death, Jesus then says his final words, it is completed. And then he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Literally the term here, he's saying that it is, the, the debt is, is fulfilled. The payment is done. In other words, that his work was sufficient to, to pay the debt that we'd incurred, that, that our sin that was holding us captive, that he beat it. That's why Paul could tell the church in Rome in Romans 5. That God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And much more than because we have now been declared righteous by his blood, we will be saved through him from God's wrath. It's a comfort for us to remember that God is good, that yes, he is a God of justice whose judgment will prevail, and yet he is a God who has made a way for us to escape his wrath. And it's not by bending rules. It's not by destroying the system that he had created previously. Instead, God is now the justifier and the one who is still just. He is the God who has made a way for us, not through our effort or our ability to to somehow earn our favor in his sight, but he is the God who has made a way for us to know him through his own personal sacrifice by sending Jesus Christ to die the death that we deserved, to be raised again on the third day, to prove once and for all his authority over what had previously seemed an undefeatable foe. This is what we celebrate. This 
is what gives us hope. This is why we are closing this morning and taking communion. Because we recognize in the Lord's Supper, we recognize as we take communion that Jesus paid it all. That it's all to him that we owe. We recognize that it's not our ability. It's not that we're somehow a cut above the rest that saves us. It's not somehow that we've done more, said more, given more. But instead, we stand before the Lord unashamed, declared righteous, not by our work, but by his blood. So we celebrate what Christ has done on our behalf. Communion is not a mystical or magical experience that earns our place in the family of God, but it is an opportunity for us, just like baptism, to celebrate what he has done, to illustrate his power that he holds alone.